Welcome into the latest edition of the Sharpshooters. I'm David Schuster, along with Andy Roth. And as always, we're brought to you by DraftKings and more from our sponsor a bit later on in this podcast. Now, today, we have the honor of being joined by Mr. Mark Zumoff, who I've known for quite a while. Mark recently retired as the play-by-play announcer for the Philadelphia 76ers. Mark was involved with the Sixers for almost four decades. And during his illustrious career, he has broadcast football, soccer, hockey, lacrosse. He did a bike race that I saw on Wikipedia and a horse show. So Mark has definitely had his hand in a lot of things. Mark also has a successful sports casting coaching company. He's won 18 Emmys and he's uh, written at least one book that I know of. But today we want to pick his brain on his longtime tenure with the Philadelphia 76ers. And with that, we bring in Mark Zumoff. And I hope, Mark, everything is well in your world. It's all good in the hood, my friend. I am a lucky man and uh, I'm really lucky to be talking to you guys. Oh, I appreciate it, even though you're lying right there. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Well, listen, we... you were quoting Wikipedia, so it must be right. <laughs> I was, actually. Anyway, uh, we have so many questions. I'm going to let Andy uh, kick it off because Andy's been a longtime friend or of mine, of course, and he's been a longtime admirer of you and everything that has to do with the Sixers. So go ahead, Andy, you lead it off. I guess we've got to start with Ben. Uh, did you think the breakup was bound to eventually happen? And how much were the comments by Doc Rivers after the Game 7 loss to the Hawks lead to this trade demand? Couldn't we ease into this with, like, how did you break <laughs> into the business or something? I have to do my job. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Um, my goodness. Well, it's a really, like anything else that gets to this point, it's, it's not easily explained. It is complicated. It does appear that the parties are headed for a divorce, which is a shame because, quite frankly, I love Ben as a player, even acknowledging his shortcomings, free throw shooting, shooting from the outside, that sort of thing. It looks as though things are done, and this is only judging by what I read since I'm really no longer on the inside and I'm not going to bother those folks anymore. I did it for the better part of 40 years. So um, I'm sorry it's come to this. It's going to be interesting to see now what happens as training camp starts. Certainly the Sixers have their options, whether it's uh, fining him or even suspending him, which would be even worse. So uh, it's good old-fashioned standoff, and it would appear as though the Sixers want to get as close to what they perceive as full value as possible. And Ben clearly wants to be somewhere else. So until those things kind of come together, just going to have to wait and see. You know, Mark, it's really interesting because, and I've told this to Andy um, previously, I don't know where Ben's going to end up playing this year, whether in a Sixers uniform or somewhere else, but I think potentially, and I underline that word, he could be the comeback player of the year no matter where he plays. And, And by that, I mean, listen, he's an incredibly talented player. That goes without saying. But if he improves in some of the areas that you already mentioned, if the guy just shoots 60% from the free throw line, if he takes some big shots in the fourth quarter and successful in doing so, I think a lot of people would say, you know what, he's worked on his game. He's taken a lot of things to heart, that criticism, and he's got that potential. I don't know what his drive is in his heart and, you know, in his mind, but he's got that potential to be the comeback player of the year, even though he's incredibly talented as is. Interesting you would say that, although if he shoots 60%, it would be below his career average. I think he's got he's got to shoot 70%, I think. That was always the benchmark that Brett Brown put there. And he also has to play for the contact so he can get to the line. I think that's been uh, perhaps an issue with him at times as well. 
and then shooting from the outside and shooting in the fourth quarter. We saw that uh, that was certainly a serious issue in the Atlanta series. And I think there is some question. Uh, I, I read something this morning, uh, Joe Lacob, uh, one of the owners, of the Golden State Warriors, he was questioning whether or not uh, it was worth acquiring Ben because can this guy be on the floor at the end of a game? Uh, I, I personally like Ben Simmons as a guy. I loved his game, and the reason I defended him was because he was just so unbelievable as it related to his skill set, his ability as a 6'10 guy to get anywhere on the floor, his willingness and ability to pass the ball. Uh, when he had a mind, he was a bona fide scorer in the Anadokupo sense. And no, he didn't take the token outside shot on occasion, but when he decided to get to the rim and finish through contact or post up, uh, he could get 18, 19, 20 points in a game. So uh, again, it's clearly over. And uh, as to whether or not he can do some of those things that you had suggested, uh, whether it's shooting 70% from the line or, or, or shooting and taking big shots in the fourth quarter, I think that's a big ask because, quite frankly, he has shown throughout his career to this point that uh, he hasn't done those things. I was curious. You had mentioned Brett Brown. I wanted to go back to early in the 2019 season because I was curious about this. Ben had hit a three-point shot, and after the game, Brett Brown said, I want Ben shooting at least one three a game, and of course that never materialized. How did Brett Brown feel about Ben sort of basically ignoring his wishes with that? Brett Brown is gone now, so quite frankly, I think you'd have to ask him. I would think that all the coaches, whether it be Brett Brown or assistants or even Doc Rivers, They'd probably like him, and I mentioned Giannis Antetokounmpo before, to pattern his game after Giannis. Um, not being especially good three-point shooter, but at least take the shot, get into the 30% range, and show that at least you can be somewhat of a threat. If you're given the elbow jumper, take the shot. Uh, you might have a night where you're starting to warm and hit it, and now we can play you in crunch time because you can make your free throws. So uh, these are all things that I'm sure were on any coach's wish list, be it Brett Brown or Doc Rivers or any assistant. Uh, the problem is that not only did he miss some of those mandates, but clearly in the Atlanta series, things really devolved and, and became a crisis for Ben. I do think that there are some confidence issues and uh, some other issues that, that Ben needs to explore. Again, this is not to be taken personally by him. But uh, to pass up an open dunk in a critical game seven in crunch time is something that, uh, quite frankly, needs to be addressed. This is not to dismiss any issues that Ben Simmons feels he might have. But uh, my goodness, that, that's something that any NBA player, whether they're Ben Simmons or whether they're Joe Simmons, uh, you can't pass up a dunk like that at a critical point in the game. Mark, I want to take you away from Ben Simmons for a moment. Um, oh, you know, great. <laughs> <laughs> and, I knew, and, and I knew that would be your reaction as well. Um, you're a lifelong Philadelphian. Is that how you say it in, the, in your neck of the woods? Yeah, you got it, my man. Okay, lifelong Philadelphian. 
and I've always, you know, you know, I'm a basketball junkie and I've been watching the the Sixers for a long time, even as a kid. I mean, the 66-67 team loaded with talent. And, and I know Andy's going to want to talk about Wilt in just a second here. The 82-83 team with Moses and Doc and Mo Cheeks. I want to talk about Mo in, in a moment also because he's here in Chicago now and I love the guy. But you've been very fortunate to be not only growing up with great basketball in your backyard, but then broadcasting it for all so many years. How fortunate do you feel about, you know, being in that environment growing up and then actually having to do the play-by-play for the, for the time that you were doing it? Guys, this whole experience has been surreal. When you think about it, I had the opportunity as a, an eight-year-old to go to the first, let me rephrase that, to go to a 76ers game the first year the team was in Philadelphia, they uh, were bought and sold. They were the Syracuse Nationals. They came to Philly in 1963. My father took me to a game. And as soon as I walked into the old ramshackle Philadelphia arena and saw the satin uniforms and the hardwood and heard the ball bouncing against that hardwood and the squeaking of the sneakers, I was hooked. It was my first love and it remains my first love to this day. And oh, by the way, the cigar and cigarette smoke that hung over the arena as well. That was something that I that I took note of. So the fact that I fell in love with the game, that shortly thereafter I started turning the sound down of my TV and doing games with a tape recorder and dreamt uh, of being the voice of the Sixers and ended up doing it, 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 it's totally surreal. It's, it's, you know, it's a cliche, but my goodness, it's a dream come true uh, in spades. Because if you think about it, there are only 30 people in the world who do what I do. That is English speaking TV voices of NBA teams. There are more U.S. senators than people who who do what I did. So the fact that I not only got a chance to do NBA games, but did it for the team I grew up rooting for, uh, it's something I'll always be eternally grateful for. And um, even though I grew up in Brooklyn, uh, huge Sixer fan, used to listen to Andy Musser. Oh, yeah. Radio. Oh, yes. Good yeah. for you. Wally with the jackknife jumper, right? Yes, absolutely. And, yep. And the reason I became a Sixer fan was that guy by the name of Wilt. Now, I know you were a youngster like me. Any any vivid memories of Wilt, plus any great stories maybe you heard from the Philadelphia basketball community? I just remember as a kid, um, and again, here's another cliche, Wilt was bigger than life. And you just remember as a kid, of course, having been around seven footers, it's no big deal anymore. But back then, I just remember watching a game at Civic Center Convention Hall and at halftime uh, running out of my seat and going as close to the floor as possible. And maybe from about 150 feet away, I was trying to measure myself against Wilt. And I ran back to my seat and said, I come up to his waist, Daddy. I come up <laughs> to his waist. And it, he was just so big in so many different senses. Uh, I do remember we have a, um, this is when I was doing halftimes, and Sonny Hill, who has become known in Philadelphia as a basketball um, impresario, he brought Wilt back to Philadelphia to just, uh, they, he called it Wilt's Reachback Day, and just to visit some of his old haunts and uh, schmooze with the kids in the neighborhood, and I remember doing an interview with Wilt and he described his free throw shooting. And I think he was like a career 51% free throw shooter. I remember him describing it as a psycho thing where if you remember, he tried many different styles. He stood two feet behind the line. He stood off to the side. 
he shot them overhand, he shot them underhanded. Uh, so it, you have to try to imagine if he shot 70% from the line, he might be the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. Uh, and that, that to me, was an unbelievable team. You, you talk about uh, Wilt Chamberlain, Luke Jackson, who then was the consummate power forward, 6'9", yep. 250, and took up a lot of space. Chet Walker, who uh, later played for the Bulls, of course, and he was traded for Jim Washington, as I recall. Here's a guy who navigated the baseline and was great with the pump fakes and drawing fouls. And then uh, back then, backcourts weren't point and shooting guards. You were just a guard. So Hal Greer, who recently passed, I want to say a couple of years ago, was such a good outside shooter that he shot free throws um, as jump shots, which and he, and he shot well over 80% for his career. And then, Andy, you had talked about uh, Wally Jones, the jackknife jumper. Uh, he is still very much alive and well and, and very vibrant. Uh, a Philly guy who got to star in a series-clinching game five in Philly against the then eight-time defending Boston Celtics as the Sixers unseated them en route to the title. You know, it's interesting, I, you know, as a young kid, and again, I, I loved that team also. I was pretty young, but I actually wanted to pattern my game after Hal Greer because he had the original quick-release quick jump shot, if I remember correctly, a la Steph Curry, you know, years, years, years you know, prior to him. I loved Hal Greer. I loved that whole team. And then, you know, obviously the other championship team, the 82-83 team, what can you say about Doc? I mean, you know, I think he was still probably pretty much at the prow, you know, the top of his prowess, I'm guessing. But, you know, again, more thrills. I mean, the city of Philadelphia has had some incredible icons, and obviously Doc is right there at the top. David, that was a team starting in Doc's first year in Philly, 76-77. They got to the finals against Portland. They had George McGinnis then. They were up 2-0 in the series, and then there was a fight between um, Daryl Dawkins and Maurice Lucas, um, two players who have uh, since passed away. But uh, it was a fight that I think in many eyes uh, turned that series around. The Blazers went on to sweep four and go on to win their only championship. Um, and then they, it was a frustrating thing for that team. They got to the finals in 80, were eliminated by the Lakers. They got to the finals in 82 and lost to the Lakers again. So Harold Katz went out and, you know, he brought a gun to a knife fight. You'll pardon the expression. It's probably inappropriate these days. But he brought uh, Moses Malone, who uh, was already a league MVP and dragged Houston to a, a finals as unlikely as it was a couple of years before. So uh, he, he went on to dominate. He was one of the greatest rebounders uh, in NBA history. And he solved all the Sixers' ills. So that was the starting lineup of Moses, of course, Julius Irving, uh, Mark Ivoroni, who played only about 15, 18 minutes a game, and then a tremendous backcourt. And I'm going to lead you into Mo Cheeks. Uh, Andrew Tony, a guy who many believe, uh, had he been healthy, could have been a Hall of Famer. And Maurice Cheeks, who remains this day one of my favorite players of all time and was just elated a few years ago when he finally got into the Basketball Hall of Fame. All right, let, let me just follow up then on Maurice Cheeks real quickly. Um, I watched him you know, his entire career. I watched him here play high school basketball. I watched him uh, in college at West Texas State because they were in the same conference as where I went to school in Southern Illinois. You know, and he, he there's something about Mo. First of all, he was just a great player, great player. You know, he was the quintessential point guard and leader on the floor. 
And, you know, he, he's uh, been a head coach. Now he's an assistant uh, coach, and he's been with Billy Donovan in one uh, venue after another, Oklahoma City, and now, of course, here in Chicago. And Lonzo Ball, who is now going to be a bull going forward, is so lucky to have a leader and, and, and somebody who can instruct him even further in his game in Maurice Cheeks. And I'm just wondering how, if you could talk about how Maurice potentially can affect Lonzo Ball in a positive way going forward. So let's think about it. In my mind, Maurice Cheeks, first of all, the, the thing that I love most about him was he was a great player and he did it in a way that was totally understated. If you think about today's player with a rejoicing and the preening, the preening to, to the camera and all of that, uh, Maurice Cheeks would never have none of it. And he was world famous for, after a game, doing great things and reporters just, you know, reaching for dental degrees to try to get something out of them. It was not the easiest thing to do because he was so quiet. I do remember uh, actually coming to Chicago as the halftime host. They had the All-Star game there in 88. And I took an extra day and actually went to DeSable High School. And I interviewed his head coach then. Um, and one of the things that he had told me was that in high school and for most of his college career, Maurice was pretty much forbidden to shoot from the outside because he was so good at penetrating and finding open guys that uh, the jump shot became foreign to him and he had to wait until his NBA career to finally develop a jump shot. Uh, he was one of the greatest defenders I'd ever seen. Uh, he got a ton of steals and for a time actually led the NBA in steals. And a lot of what he did was double down on the big guy and just, you know, as soon as the big guy would bring it down to his waist or anywhere close to it, he'd be there for a steal. And my one of my favorite stats uh, for Maurice Cheeks and there aren't many players who played as many games as he did and have this stat. And think about this for a second. Maurice Cheeks, in his career, more total steals than turnovers. Think about that. More wow. total steals than turnovers for Maurice Cheeks in his career. So if Lonzo Ball gives him half an ear, uh, he could turn out to be an all-star given uh, the wealth of experience that Maurice Cheeks had. I want to go back to Doc winning the ring in 83 and this narrative that's been developed over the years about linking a superstar's legacy to the amount of rings. If they don't make that trade for Moses, he probably doesn't get a ring. And I think this narrative is, is a false narrative. Everybody needs help. Uh, you know, Kareem and Magic had each other. As good as that Sixer roster was, Doc needed Moses. Do you think this is really a false narrative by the media in, in this respect? I think it was certainly rendered moot, Andy, by the fact that they did win in 83. And don't forget, and Doc mentioned this on any one of a number of occasions leading up to 83, is that he won a championship in the ABA. And maybe that was a half step at most below the NBA. But, you know, when you think about the four teams they absorbed and the players and, of course, the three-point shot, uh, the ABA in many ways, uh, despite all the, all the laughs and all the craziness, might have been uh, every bit as good as NBA basketball. So uh, that's one thing that I think a lot of writers who eventually formulated the narrative uh, certainly forgot. But uh, Julius Irving, uh, one of the greatest all time, certainly top, I would say, at least 10, 15 on, on many lists. And there are a ton of players who have won rings who were simply not nearly as good as Julius Irving. So, um, you know, when you consider people who've had great careers and have not won rings, you're absolutely right. 
uh, you need help. Um, and, and now it's gone the other side where you have guys who are forming super teams and a lot of the old timers are criticizing that because that's something that was never done back in the day. You just played with who you had and uh, there, there weren't these super teams being made. We'll continue with Mark in just a moment. First, a word from our sponsor and week two of football is in the books. And now it's time to review the tape and get ready for week number three with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. To kick off another action-packed week, DraftKings is giving new customers $150 instantly when they bet $1 on any football game. So listen up because you don't want to miss this. Head to the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and place a bet of $1 on any game to receive $150 in free bets instantly. If Sportsbook is not yet available in your state, DraftKings still has huge cash prizes up for grabs all season long with their daily fantasy contest. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code THPN to receive $150 in free bets when you place a $1 bet on any football game. That's promo code THPN this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. You must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only, minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer, restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. And we continue now, now with Mark Zumoff. Mark, uh, last year had to be really strange. Obviously, the pandemic has affected so many aspects of so many uh, parts of life. But in the sports world, you were broadcasting games, and I'm sure you were doing it in a studio watching the games from afar. How weird was that? Actually, to be quite honest with you, I have done events off of monitors. I did sled hockey once for NBC off of a monitor. I've done soccer games off of a monitor. It's not ideal, but I think given the circumstances, you had to accept whatever limitations were presented. So you're clearly insulated. So the pregame schmooze, whether it's talking with scouts or coaches or players and really arming yourself with information that was not to be. I did have great cooperation from the Sixers and I was able to phone an assistant coach before many games and uh, talk a little bit about the current state of the team. And then of course you, you, you're, you're limited by what you can see off the monitor. You can't look away. You can't look at a reaction of a coach on the bench. You can't really see anything that's happening away from the ball. So uh, you just announced within that scope and it was what it was. Listen, guys, uh, we all know that the, the pandemic has taken its toll, not only in human lives, but for uh, people and their careers or their jobs. And the fact that I still had a way to earn money and continue my career without uh, being laid off or anything like that, I, I was very grateful for. And I accepted the limitations as they were. Wanted to get back to Julius for one second. Maybe the most memorable shot in the NBA was the reverse layup in the 80 finals against the Lakers. But was there a shot that you saw during the regular season that, that maybe topped that? The only thing I could think of is the uh, rock the baby dunk on Michael Cooper. And I got to be honest with you, that was a regular season game at the old spectrum. 
And for some reason, um, I was called away. Typically, I would watch the games from the press box, and at halftime, I would, uh, I would go and I would do my thing either from the studio or the court. And I remember being called away, and I was in the bowels of the spectrum, and I just remember hearing a roar that, quite frankly, I don't think I'd ever heard before. Uh, the building literally shook. So while I could say that I was there in the building, I actually missed <laughs> I actually missed the dunk when it when it happened, but that to me, um, as much as especially since it happened at a finals, we call it the Mother's Day move. By the way, that reverse layup against the Lakers, uh, that rock the baby uh, dunk, I think uh, is right up there with that uh, with that dunk he had in the finals. Mark, uh, obviously, I'm going to be very jaded with what I'm about to say. Uh, you know, I, I've been very fortunate to cover some great basketball players, and, and obviously Michael Jordan's at the top of the totem pole. From afar, or even when you broadcast games involving Michael, you know, what were your thoughts on him? Um, you know, was it a, and is it a thrill not only for a player like him, but so many other great players? What was it like broadcasting, going into their cities or having them come into yours, and just witnessing these guys up close and personal? Personally, and this is my old school leaking through, but I think the 80s and 90s were the gold standard when it comes to the NBA and, you know, just ticking off the guys, whether it's uh, Kim Olajuwon or Moses Malone or Carl Malone or Michael Jordan or John Stockton and blah, 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 blah. Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, you can go on. I, I just think that this was the golden era, much the way, I don't know, people, I guess, point to the 50s and 60s for baseball. So uh, Michael, of course, was part of that. Uh, to me, he's the greatest player of all time. You could do the, uh, you know, the pound for pound thing and say, well, Allen Iverson, who's ever done what he's ever done at six feet, 165 pounds. But uh, given the, the scope and the depth and breadth and the accomplishments of Michael and how he did it, uh, he, he, to me, he's the greatest of all time. And, you know, today, players are insulated. And I understand a lot has to do with the fact that we're in the age of the internet, so there are there's that much more notoriety. There are that many more people who are covering teams, and so players, I guess, need to be shielded somewhat by if it's not PR people, marketing people, or whatnot. But Michael was the kind of guy I just remember. You know, he got to know us in Philly, myself and my producer. We were the halftime guys, and if Michael was coming off the floor after putting up his shots before he went into the locker room, we hey hey Michael, you got a couple of minutes for us? Yeah, sure. And he would sit down and give us five, ten, fifteen minutes pregame. Whereas today, to think about getting, I don't know, LeBron James or whatever, and this is no reflection on LeBron, but hey, LeBron, you, you, can you sit down for 5, 10, 15 minutes and chat to, with us about whatever? It's just not going to happen for a lot of different reasons. But Michael was always very accommodating, and uh, to this day, I'm very grateful for that. We're all old-school basketball guys. I was wondering how you feel about the current style of play, where every night it's a mini three-point shooting contest, and you can't put your hands on an offensive player uh, as passionate a basketball fan as I am. I'm not a big fan of the current style of play. How do you feel about it? I would tend to agree. I like hand tracking. I, I like, I, I don't mind a game in the upper nineties, low hundreds. I don't need to see up and down threes galore. And it's gotten to the point now where teams, and I think it's going to increase as the analytics continue to take hold and, uh, coaches are married to the three-point shot. Uh, more, they're taking more threes than twos in games. So uh, it's 
clearly become um, a, a game where the three-point shot is at the center of things. Uh, I miss low post play. I miss really good defense. And it's a real challenge now to be able to play good team defense. So it's funny. When you hold a team to below 110 points, it's considered a good defensive night. So I tend to agree with you, but I think Andy and David, I haven't heard what you had to say, but uh, I think we're in the minority and we're in the minority because the NBA wants to promote a free flowing, high scoring game. So I think as long as that's the mandate and the desire and their marketing and everything else says that this is the way our fans want to see the game played, they're going to design rules and, and do things to promote that kind of that kind of style. Mark, I'm probably singing to the choir on this one. I think Joel Embiid is is the best center in basketball right now. He can do so many things, and and where I really fell in love with him, and you know, for for first couple of years in the NBA, I didn't get to see him against the Bulls because unfortunately he was injured every time you know the Bulls played them, whether here or on the road. But when he finally played here at the United Center, and I saw him dive on the floor for a couple of balls, that's you don't see many seven-footers do that. You just don't. I, I fell in love with him as a player. He's got so much talent. He had a game against the Bulls last year. I know you broadcasted it, that he was so automatic. He had like upper 40s or something like that and a, and a boatload of rebounds. Is he, in your mind, the best center in basketball? And how much better can he even be? So that Bulls game, yeah, I think he had 50, and he had a bone-crushing 17-footer on the left wing to, yeah. to seal it shut for the Sixers. He was a one-man show that night. Um I think the thing, and and again, um, Nikola Jokic, I think a lot of people would argue that he's the best big man in the game right now. And it, when you compare them side by side, uh, the thing that holds Joel back from being that unanimous guy is exactly what you said, the fact that he doesn't play as many games as people would like to see. This is not um, in any way a, a critique of Joel. It's just been unfortunate. He's been injured, and, and that's the way it is for him. And it's been for, unfortunately, a lot of players who uh, have just run into bad luck. So if Joel can find a way to play 70 games, I think that would, uh, that would bolster the argument of people like you who think he is the best big man in the game. Uh, but think about it. Everything that he can do for a man his size is uh, is is pretty phenomenal. He doesn't have the assist stats that Jokic has, but but listen, their 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 offense is designed around him for him to get it at the low post and to either backdoor people to death or or do whatever he does to create for others. But I'm a huge Joel guy, and by the way, a, an awesome human being. Uh, a lot of people don't know him that well, but I've had some great off the floor conversations with him that um, that have pointed out to me that he is. Uh, He's an awesome dude, and, and and I look for him to have a big year and hopefully a healthy year. And he's a big fan of Wilt. Which, to me, uh, if you're going to pattern your game, now now things were a lot different back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, you talk about filtering your offense through a guy. Uh, it, it was good old-fashioned basketball. They gave the ball to Wilt, I remember, in the low post, and he would hold the ball above his head like a grapefruit, and guys would just sort of like dance around him, and he would – he would literally cherry pick guys, you know, throwing out the Hal Greer for a 15 footer or dropping something over his shoulder for a guy who was diving to the hoop. He, he was great to watch. If you're going to pattern your game after Wilt, you absolutely positively can't go wrong. I want to uh, ask you about one young player on the roster. I really like Tyrese Maxey uh, played with a tremendous amount of confidence last year. Uh, talk about his game and how much you like him. 
First of all, I love him as a young man. He's often quoting his parents. He talks to them all the time. He quotes his father and all the different lessons he has taught him about being prepared for a game. So to me, a young person who uh, is attached to his parents like that and feels the vibe and the lessons that they have taught him, to me, uh, speaks volumes for him. Uh, he's a young guy who can get to the hole anytime he wants. Uh, I can only imagine that this summer, knowing him, he has spent a lot of time in the gym developing his outside game. And right now, uh, he's huge for the Sixers because who takes Ben Simmons' place in the lineup? Well, you would think it would have to be him. Uh, I think, personally, there was one game in the Atlanta series, I can't recall which one, where I think he saved the team's bacon, where had Doc Rivers not gone to him, I don't think they would have uh, they would have won that game. So he is a delightful guy. He's got a great game. He's got a tremendous upside. He's got an awesome work ethic. And right now, I got to think he's the starting point guard for the Sixers going into training camp. One more question each from both myself and Andy for Mark. And Mark, we appreciate your time. Um, if you believe the people in Vegas, they might as well have the NBA championship this week because between Brooklyn and the Lakers, they're both riding some matchup. And both teams are sort of doing the same thing. They're just adding veteran after veteran after veteran to go around their, their nucleus. Is that good for basketball, Mark? I mean, you know, listen, the Sixers are going to be in the hunt, obviously, in the East, and there'll be other teams in the West. But those two teams are loading up. And you mentioned that, you know, nowadays teams, you know, it's the players that basically put together the teams. LeBron will go down as maybe the greatest general manager of all time. <laughs> Is that good for basketball, Mark, or not? I think it depends on how you look at it. I know when the Yankees were dominant, uh, some people said, well, geez, it's, you know, it's good to have the empire and it's good to have someone for everybody to focus on. And then a lot of people point to the NFL and they say, well, gee, don't you want to have parity and give everybody a chance? Um, and, and quite frankly, just because it's there on paper doesn't guarantee a championship. I remember they were going to hand Carl Malone and Gary Payton rings when they joined the Lakers, and, and that never happened. So, um, it, listen, it is what it is. This is the state of our game. If it got to the point, I think, where um, it happened and teams who did that consistently won, then maybe the Board of Governors would have uh, put it, uh, make some changes in that regard and make it maybe harder in some ways to put together super teams like that. But right now, this is the, the state of our game. And if the rules allow it, they're going to do it. And um, other teams just have to buck up and do what they have to do to overcoming the Nets or the Lakers or whoever else puts together a super team. With uh, this being the 75th anniversary of the league, they'll be naming the top 75 players. I was wondering if you think that guys like Wilt and Russell and Oscar don't get their just due, uh, that the current generation of media fans and players don't know enough about the history of the game. Doc has talked about the fact that the NBA treats the game as if it didn't exist until the 80s. How do, how do you feel about that? I'm an old school guy, so for me, it was important that I learn about players that I'd never seen, whether it was Joe Folks or Paul Arizon or Bob Cousy. So I would hope that young people today would get an understanding that LeBron James stands on the shoulders of Elgin Baylor or that Kevin Durant, he stands on the shoulders of Wilt Chamberlain, that if not for these guys, the current players wouldn't be able to do what they're doing. 
Uh, you can't say the same thing about fans, young fans. They're enamored with today, what's new, what's cutting edge, what's exciting. And let's just hope that the NBA does a good job of educating people on what came before so that they can appreciate them. But listen, um, there's nothing you can do about the fact that uh, young people are so deluged now with information on what's happening today that uh, chances are they're not going to be able to see this kind of stuff. So let's just hope that people like you and uh, David, we all live long enough, Andy, so that we can continue to school young people and help them to appreciate the game that came before them. Mark, I've always told you that you're one of my favorites. I've always enjoyed when you came to Chicago and sitting next to you and, and uh, you know, listening to you, you know, do the play-by-play -play of the game, but just talking to you in general, and, and this just reinforces it today. Um, I wish you continued health, good health, and, and, and I'm jealous uh, that you're retiring, uh, but I know you, you're not going to retire hundred percent. I know you're going to dabble in a lot of things and, and you'll be successful in everything. So again, on, on behalf of Andy and myself, we really appreciate you joining us. And it's been a pleasure, a pleasure talking to you this morning. David, you're a pro. Andy, it was great getting to know you. Long may you wave with your podcast guys. And <laughs> if you see fit in a few years and I'm still alive and kicking, have me back. Great. Right, thanks again. That's Mark Zuloff. I'm David Schuster. He's Andy Roth, and we'll be back again next week.